Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's guest is the Nobel Laureate in Economic Sciences and Professor at Chapman University, Dr. Vernon Smith. Dr. Smith has written over 350 books and articles, has taught at Stanford and Caltech, and, of course, won the Nobel Prize. He also has a long memory. He was born in 1927, so he has first-hand experience of the last nearly 100 years. Today I talk with Dr. Smith about the discoveries he made based on a series of experiments in behavioral economics. What those experiments showed contradicted the widely held assumptions about narrow self-interest being the motivation for free exchange. Smith's experiments revealed that people would freely take risks to help others, and in turn, entrust their own goals to the goodwill of others. Reciprocity, not narrow selfishness, was at the heart of free exchange. The whole concept of self-interest needed to be rethought, in light of this beautiful paradox— that the only way to self-realization is through concern for others. Smith's work thus strikes a fatal blow to the neo-Marxist conceit that there is nothing but the will to power. Because at the heart of things is not, as the cynics would have you believe, power and endless domination of one by another, but rather a deep well of reciprocity, of spontaneous and free self-development. You see that self-developing reciprocity in economics, in nature, in evolution, in intellectual inquiry, in forgiveness. You see it everywhere. It's what Dante, in the last line of his Commedia, calls the love that moves the sun and the other stars. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm sitting here in Orange County, California, at Chapman University with Professor Vernon Smith, laureate of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. It is a great pleasure and an honor to be here, Vernon. Thank you. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming. It's a a nice uh, Sunday afternoon, although the sun's not shining today. Well, it's maybe not quite (laughs) as Californian as it usually is, but... But, you know, Vernon, there's so many things I am keen to ask you about, from economics to religion to education. So let's get right down to it and start with uh, economics. What is a truth or established observation or fact in economics that, in your view, is most broadly misunderstood today? Oh, I think the efficacy of markets, mm-hmm. you know. I think that, uh, I, I mean, markets are incredible. And, and I think, we, you see, I, I wasn't brought up to believe that. You know, I was a socialist. My mother was a socialist. You grew up as a socialist. Yes, and I wasn't brought up to believe that at all. And in fact, we, we, uh, it, was, it was the contrary. And and I ended up, though, getting interested in economics and studying it. And that began a long uh, road of escape from those original ideas. 
But the thing that I would say, the, the events that really made the, the biggest difference in my life was the first experiments I did in economics. Mm. You see, this was, this was not until, I'd finished my PhD at Harvard and gone to Purdue University. And at the beginning of the second semester, I did my first experiment, uh, a classroom experiment. And uh, unknown to the, any of the participants in that market, it was possible to predict the outcome because the buyers were given values, the sellers were given what we call costs, and, and these can just be random numbers. And you take the values of the buyers, arrange, arrange them from highest to lowest, they're going to earn the difference between the value I have secretly assigned them and the price they pay on the market. And the sellers are going to earn the difference between the price at which they sell and their costs. Those values arrayed from highest to lowest uh, constitutes a demand curve, a demand schedule. The, the, the costs arrayed from lowest to highest. These are out-of-pocket costs. Think of them that way. Uh, from lowest to highest is a supply curve, and there's an intersection, and there's a price and a quantity that's a prior prediction of what will happen. And so help me, it converged to, the, to that equilibrium very close, within three periods, three, four periods of, of repetition, and I was completely unprepared for that. So was the economics profession. There's no one would believe that that could happen. Well, I would, I would, I would, would dig into this a little deeper, and I, and I want to try and make these ideas as broadly accessible as we can. You know, when you say that markets, markets are the perhaps most misunderstood thing in economics today, let's just break that right down. What is a market? Because I certainly find what you're saying to be true, that there would be all sorts of people who think that the market is a terrible thing and it's an evil thing, but they don't well, really have much idea what a market even is. What, how, would you, how can you put well, it in simple terms what a market is? You know, it, it, of course, now it's, it's very difficult to locate it physically because we trade on the Internet. We buy and sell things on the Internet. But it's, where, it, it's a medium, a, a situation where buyers and sellers can come together. And the buyers want something that the sellers have to sell, and the sellers have this thing, and they're looking for money. They're looking for sell them to to exchange their goods against money, and so that's a market. And and uh, at Harvard, I learned that one of the foremost uh, neoclassical economists, William Stanley Jevons, who 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 modeled markets said that, well, there's no way you could actually get to such an idealized equilibrium unless everybody in the market had full information on supply and demand. Just back up a little. What is an idealized equilibrium for those listeners of ours who well, are not quite Well, the equilibrium is a price such that demand is exactly equal to supply. That's the usual way we think of it. It's actually much more general than that. It's really just a stable point, you see, where a market may uh, approach and the, the prices may approach that doesn't move. 
or or it may jitter. It isn't that there aren't isn't some motion, but it but it's a sync delay. And of course, most of the of the of the markets we go to, prices have already stabilized. Although, clearly, I mean, perishables like lettuce and so forth may may be subject to all sorts of short run background conditions. Background conditions yeah. that change their price. You see, almost. Uh, I mean, for from day to day. And we see some of that in every supermarket. So is the equilibrium then, is that the point at which you have the, let's say, the, the price at, at which buyers can be uh, most satisfied with the price at which sellers can be most satisfied with yes. the price? Yeah, they are, they are mutually and simultaneously satisfied okay. with, with the terms in which they are buying and selling. Okay. And... Uh, and that's the way we usually think of, of an equilibrium. And we usually think of the market as clearing. That is, the amount that buyers will take at that price is equal to the amount that sellers are willing to supply. So, so to people who may not be familiar with economic theory, even perhaps less familiar than I am, let's say, which is saying something, you know, if a price is too low, then people aren't going to be willing to, to, to produce the product yeah. for sale. If it's too high, then people won't buy. And that's what the equilibrium is trying to find, the, the, yes. the, the price and at which it can, the product can change hands, satisfying to the sellers to sell and buyers to purchase. Right. And the best way to read about that, uh, without any connection to the notion of a supply, supply and demand schedules, like I have described it, mm -hmm. The best description of that, shorn of any any reference to theory, is in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, Chapter Seven. Chapter but, Seven. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, uh, Smith says he he thinks of sellers coming to market. Okay, sellers come to market; they're bringing goods to sell, and they know their costs. Okay, if they bring only maybe a small amount. They quickly find out that buyers are willing to pay a lot more than their costs, and the prices bid up. If they come together with a large amount, they may find that buyers won't or unwilling to to take all that they've brought to market and and reimburse them their costs, and so prices tend to fall. And that's a actually a beautiful description of what goes in a mar on in a market based upon the experience of the people that have come to the market. Mm. And, and in a way, you see that's best expressed in classical economics because you, you get down to the present and we have all this paraphernalia of theory and we tell the story in terms of that theory, you see. Not in terms of the experience of the people that are, that, that are actually participating and I actually have only recently come to appreciate that aspect of Smith. And in all of his work, he is talking about uh, the experience of people in situations and describing what happens and their experiences in terms of that. that. I, want to, I, want, I, want to, I want to dig into that a little deeper when you talk about the experiences of people in situations could you say a few words about how markets work? Say, unlike a farm or a business, 
There is no one managing a market in the sense that there's no right, one person right. arranging all the parts, you know, or a family, you know, well, you know, mom or dad may say, well, you do this and you do this and you do this so we can get ready for, you know, the movie tonight or get ready to go to church right, tomorrow right. or, or in a, in a, we, I had a, grew up in a small sort of a hobby farm and there were a lot of tasks to be arranged and they didn't just spontaneously get done. Someone had to be in charge saying what would happen in business and, you know, when you're running a business or something or an institution, that's, it's, it's similar. There's a president of this university and a structure right, going right. on down. Can you say how markets work without any of that kind of um, uh, right. management, let's say? Right. In a sense, there's nobody and yet everybody is yes. in charge. That is, uh, everybody has a part, a little bit of that action and is affecting them. But, but, but of course, they're not aware of that. Each person, you see. And, and I'm thinking of, uh, you, you, uh, see, imagine... The supplies into it coming into a supermarket come from all kinds of uh, growers, you see, like fresh produce and that sort of thing. And you say, well, the supermarket's in, the manager of the market is in charge. Well, yes, but, he, but and so he may set a price, but it may be a mistake. Mm. He's, he's left with, at the end of the period, with goods that are spoiling because they didn't sell them all. You see, so that's a mistake, and so he corrects that, and 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 so the, and why is it a mistake? It's because buyers won't take it all at that price, or willing to take more than that, and so, so he runs out of tomatoes by noon, and he just put them out on the shelves in the morning. Well, he doesn't. He's he's he's, he's he really realizes I got to raise the price on that. He can't serve his customers unless he raises the price. He, he's not helping all those people who who didn't come to shop early enough to, to before they ran out of tomatoes. You see, so so he he may be you may think of him as well. He's interested in in, in his own welfare. Well, but he can't his own welfare can't be out of sync with the welfare of others, or he's not going to uh, get the prices right. So that's the sense you see in which a market is a. It's a very democratic institution, except people are uh, voting with dollars. Yes. You see, and so uh, we, we all we all have lots of votes, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> but it, it it it's 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 the people themselves spontaneously deciding what the prices are going to be, as it were. Right. Now, now, the one widespread economic theory is called maximum utility, or max U, which I've learned about only by reading your work. Um, how would you describe max U? It's a two-part question. What is max U, and what was it about your famous experiments that max U was unable to explain? Well, uh, the actually, the market experiments did explain that. That is, each person, uh, in the first experiments that I did, uh, by finding that equilibrium, each person did earn the most money he could against the constraint that everybody else was also uh, earning their most. So that each person does best, and the market as a whole does best. That's Max U. And that and that. You see, I started out, and that was, and those ex first experiments very much uh, 
confirm the notion that people operating in their own interest and, and maximizing their own reward, if everybody did that, they did best for the group, you see. And this was, an, this was a very prominent example of that. And, and by and large, that's what markets do. Now, now you can come up with examples with, that's contrary to that, where people are making uh, markets in goods and uh, somebody's using water and, his, and, and he's polluting the water. Okay, well, that's a case where others are bearing a cost that he's not bearing. So it's important that in a market that everybody bear the cost that they impose on others. And, and of course, nothing is perfect. There's always going to be some slippage in that regard. But to the extent, by and large, markets have that property, they're going to just let people do what they want to do in that market and you'll get the, the best outcome possible. Try to management and you're probably going to foul it up. That's max you. Yes, and that's max you at the individual level. Okay. So, so, so two follow-up questions then. The first is, one time you said to me, Vernon, if I'm not mistaken, that you don't like the term free market. Uh, why is that? And what do you prefer to refer to oh. this to in, with as in Oh, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I've never liked the term free market because none of these markets are free. You see, they're all, they're all governed by property rights. I, I can't go into Safeway and steal stuff uh, without suffering penalties if I'm caught. And also, uh, you see, Safeway's in trouble if they are merchandising something as having certain characteristics and it doesn't. Dishonesty. So, yeah. So if I buy something at, at, in the supermarket, take it home, and, and it's spoiled, if there's anything about it that doesn't live up to the way that product is, is, is advertised or presented, uh, then I have a claim against that, that, uh, that company, that store. So that, so, and, and in fact, we, we have... And see, that part of markets has gotten better and better because it used to be you didn't know what's in the bottle you're buying. You see, well, now we have truth in advertising, truth in labor, labeling. Uh, we, we have, uh, uh, we, we've created standards, you see, for, uh, for consumer quality that firms are expected to live up to. And buyers are expected to pay. No cheating here on either side. You see, that's, and, and, and that has, I think, enormously improved the operations of our e economy compared with, say, 200 years ago, you know. <clears throat> yes. Now, I've got many questions I want to tease out here in terms of your, your, your own insights into how, the, how markets work. Um, but relative to what you're just saying now about these improvements in, you might say, transparency, uh, in these improvements relative to the, the honesty with which the buyers and sellers must conduct themselves, um, how is it that, uh, I mean, you might say that there's been, it's, a, it's, an, econo it's, a, it's a, 
it's a simple fact that there's been a huge increase in wealth and reduction in poverty through the yes. work of markets over the last couple hundred years. And yet, broadly speaking, particularly amongst young people, there is a sense that capitalism is fundamentally about exploitation. And I know I myself don't like the word capitalism because I think it concedes Marx's critique uh, that you know, capital just all moves, move, moves upwards uh, to, 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 the, to the owners of the means of production, as Marx would say. Mm -hmm. So I don't like the word capitalism. But, but whatever we're going to call it, a, a, a system of voluntary exchange or uh, free market or capitalism, there's no question whatsoever. It's simply an undeniable historic fact that it has played a massive role. It's yes, essentially yes. a miracle the last 200 years what has happened in terms of the reduction of global poverty and increase of standards of living. How is it that so many people today uh, either do not understand that or who go further to think that markets are, in fact, the source of many of our ills? Well, see, the thing that's invisible to people is how markets promote specialization, promote, they, they incentivize us each to find uh, means by which we can best improve ourselves by, by supplying uh, our services to, to markets. And, and so, you know, the, the fact that, that the, the fact that the people who specialize in growing corn are really good at that doesn't mean they're good at manufacturing aluminum or doing anything else, and they make their living that way. You see, gradually through markets, we become more and more specialized. And, 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 and that, you see, leverages production because now you... you See, you, you, you can demonstrate this if you very easily, for example, has been done if people are, if they are oh, uh, folding papers, if they're doing some, some task, and one person has to do all of the tasks versus splitting, breaking the task up. And, and, and you see what, what prices do is enable my what I do to be separated from any kind of planning and joint uh, uh, joint planning with anyone else because I just have a price signal that says that I that, that I do better at those prices if I do this. Well, that turns out the, why why is are those prices encouraging me to mm. do that? because those prices represent the value of me doing that to the rest of the world. So each of us, you see, are, are and, and, and we don't, and we're not aware of this. You see, this is something that takes place, is particularly dramatic across generations, you see. And it's why it is that almost everyone is better off than their parents and certainly better off than their grandparents and so on. Now, how do you explain that? You see, and and then we have these these cases where none of those forces are are at work. And the interesting thing about Venezuela is that 
those people were very prosperous. Venezuela is a is a is a they're extremely rich in terms of resources, of natural resources, resources. natural. So resources. what fundamentally has has happened to make it the catastrophe it is now in terms of the market, the, the marketplace mechanisms you're describing? Well, uh, Venezuela Venezuela was captured by the socialist uh, dream. And immediately, I mean, one of the first things they did was to seize the oil companies. And the problem is that you have to, if you're going to see, take over the oil companies, you have to, you have to find substitutes for the skills, the, the technical skills that are brought to the industry by the oil companies. And similarly, they seized the supermarkets. Well. Guess what? They couldn't feed themselves. How, why is it that you can't feed yourself and you and you own all of the all the distribution outlets? You see, you've lost that all of the coordination uh, miracle of prices and specialization. And if you're going to do that, you have to you have to find the substitute, or you're 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 going to be worse off than before. So, every, a lot of people applauded. The, uh, the, Venezuela, the Venezuelan government because uh, they were redistributing income to the poor. They made electric, electric power free. Well, now, guess what? Now there's all kinds of shortages of power, you see. So there is a, there's this, there's just somehow this sense that it's easy to, to, to to run an economy, and it can easily be managed better than all of these chaotic uh, 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 firms that are out there competing under 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 capitalism. Well, it just turns out it's not true. So markets, because I think it's very important to give, for example, young people their due when they, if they seem, if they are actually motivated by a desire to help others or to. Uh, improved a lot of those who are uh, at the bottom. But what I understand you to be saying about markets is that they enable you as an individual to offer up what you in particular can offer in a way that perhaps no one else can, but yes. at least to the very, yes. the thing that you have to offer, you get to offer that up into a marketplace, into a system out of which someone who you may not even know can that will meet the need that someone someone some that you do not even know, and so yeah. conversely, the market allows you to select among all of these things that are being thrown into this marketplace of the ones that most seat, suit your need. Maybe a medical need or a uh, material need. It may be food. It could be any of any of the things that of the infinite number of things the market provides. Right. But essentially, the market the market's mechanisms move towards the maximum, most particular satisfaction of the needs of others. Right, and, and I think young people's concern about the poor is entirely legitimate. We imagine, well, surely, with all the wealth that's around, why are there poor people, you see? Well, it's fairly uh, simple. People tend to get paid in proportion to their contribution to the system, and there are going to be people at the bottom, you see, whose contribution is not as great as others. And, and, and the contribution here is measured in terms of what people are willing to pay for your contribution. You see, mm -hmm. what are other, others are willing to pay? 
and uh, and it's a simple solution to the problem of the poor, and that is to raise their productivity, make them more valuable. And of course, this is kind of well known. We know that education and these things make a difference, and and I think the moves to to broaden the base of education are well, you know, well motivated because that's the place to to do that. And I think the people are perfectly capable of being far, far better off economically if they could get a chance to develop and, and are free to choose and make choices that, that contribute to the world's output. Same thing in Venezuela and Cuba and, and, and also remote portions of Africa and Asia that are poor and, and very much uh, separated kind of from the world economy. What would you say to someone who's, who would say, well, that's all fine and good in terms of economic productivity, but don't human beings have a, uh, an innate constitutional dignity that is not measurable by economic output? And is there a, a mismatch between that, you might say, infinite dignity and the uh, relentless uh, mechanisms of the marketplace that move towards economic value alone? Well, I think the American experiment is a wonderful example where that dignity is respected and it's built into our constitution, the whole ideas of, of uh, freedom, freedom in uh, social, political, and economic uh, uh, spheres. And this is one of the, and, 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 and of course those roots are in Northern Europe, in, in, uh, in the UK and in the Netherlands, because and go, they go back to the 17th, early and 18th centuries. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and, and we now kind of, and, the, the, and you see that, you see those roots accounted for early growth and economic development, and then that moved west. U.S., Canada, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, and those were exactly the, the places where uh, people from Northern Europe uh, emigrated. And it, it came back to Europe and is now kind of worldwide, you see. We're seeing those China is, is just remarkable how, and, and they've only liberalized economically in their export market. The markets where China touches other countries in terms of trade, uh, there's a lot more freedom than there is, you see, among domestic markets. And you, and you see now China being basically sucked in <laughs> to more, providing more and more freedom because it's the only way they're going to, uh, uh, to, to solve their problem of poverty. And of course, Hong Kong has been an engine of, of, of production and of wealth for a long time. Hey, I completely agree with what you've said, and I would even say that those roots of liberty go much, back, much further back in the West, back to the, even all the way back to the Greeks. Yes. If we were to understand the, the reason markets work as because 
They empower individuals to make decisions based on the information they have on the ground as they see as things seem best to them. Uh, that actually is an affirmation of the uh, you might say the the intrinsic intrinsic abilities of the individual to handle life as is in front of them, and not simply as an atom in the void, but in relation to the movement of others, uh, yeah. others too. So it seems to me that really what's moving in, in what you say is that the, the, what a market allows is for an individual to offer what they have to the world in the form that seems best to him or her. Yes, and I quite agree that that does have deep roots in Greek and Roman because... And indeed Christian. Yes. The, the, uh, Greek citizens had a lot of freedom to, to go where they wanted to. The same thing with Roman, you see. Uh, a, a lot of freedom. Now, it's true they had slaves and there were people that, that didn't have access to all of that. Uh, but but the, that was... Everybody in those days routinely enslaved whoever they conquered. That's, that was one of the benefits of winning a war rather than losing it. You got to enslave. But you see, already early on, particularly in, I think, in uh, Judaism, you started to have modifications of that, where uh, the old Jewish law started to restrict how long you could, you know, and. and uh, the, the enslaved, I mean, they started to, what, seven years that you started to get rules, and also the child was free, or there was early evidence of that, you see, going clear back. And, and well, there's absolutely no question that there, that there was an, an imperfect, a very imperfect or very incomplete application of the principles. Uh, but the insight, you might say, yes. that present in the human being. I would say you see this in, in Homer, you see it in Aristotle, the insight that the human being has a relation uh, within him or herself, has a relation to what is real, that, that within, the, uh, within one's innate capacities uh, of, uh, of, of, of thinking, of knowing, of perceiving the world, uh, there's, a re- there's a stable relation to what's really real. That yeah. certainly is what the Greeks thought, and of course, as you say, uh, that 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 did not lead them to some sense of the you know the universal dignity of every human being in in the in the sixth or fifth century B, uh, BC. But that that is where that logic leads over time. That's the uh, model. That is, a, and and yeah. in fact, even before while people were still pe- 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 speaking Greek, those that very principle was articulated in Greek. Um, in the of course, with the Christian religion, you have an, an an absolutizing of that logic, such as even the person who is the weakest among us is accorded, uh, 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 and you might say an equality of dignity with yes, the person yes, who is the strongest. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that is, you might say, an absolutizing of a logic that is earlier present. Um, you know, I, I have been so inspired. I've been reading Humanomics. This is a book uh, for those of you listening. Humanomics, Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations for the 21st Century by Vernon L. Smith and Bart J. Wilson. What I've been struck with in this book and in, in some of your academic papers is what you say, the experiments you conducted revealed that Max U was unable to explain. So we've talked about equilibrium and pricing and the maximum equilibrium of a marketplace what did your experiment show 
that Max Yu could not explain? Okay. We started, uh, I think it would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. 90s. We started to do uh, what we call two-person trust games in the laboratory. And, and I'll never forget one of the first ones uh, we did. Imagine you're in a room with, say, an even number of people. Maybe there's 11 others and there's 12 of you in the room. Or maybe you and 15, which makes six, an even number. And we put you in a game in which you are paired with someone else in the room at random. Either you or that person will be the first mover in the game, and that's a random uh, 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 event. And you'll never know who you're paired with, okay? And you'll, you'll never know who that is, so you're operating you can operate completely anonymously, all right? That's, that's the situation. And in, the, in this game, you're going to play it exactly once, okay? And I remember the first one that we did. Uh, if you were the first mover in this game, you could play right, and each of you got $10, and the game was over. Or person one say me, could pass to you, to person two, and that $20 uh, was doubled and became $40, okay? So... <clears throat> For both of them? $40 stakes. Okay. Okay, the now, now instead of $20 that you're splitting, it becomes uh, uh, $40. Okay, uh, now you could, I'm trying to remember the original, let's see, in, in the original case, then person number two uh, could, could move right and one got $15 and two got 25. That was how the $40 would be split. Or two could move down and person one got nothing, and, and the entire $40 went to person two. So we deliberately created a situation where it was really hazardous for person one to pass to person two, who, who he would never know who that is, and that person could take all the money. So if they chose to pass, they were at the mercy of okay. what that person yes. that they passed to would do, who yes. could choose either... 1525 or 040. Oh, well, if everyone, if each, if everybody is Max Shu, if each person, and if the players believe that each person is just in this business to get, do the best for himself. Every time you're. If, if one passes to two, he's going to take it all. So it'd be better for you to play right and get $10. Each get $10. Ten, right. And you'll notice that that game is structured so that the pair is, the wealth generated by those two individuals is greatest if one passes to two. So we think of there being some synergy between one and two that we don't tell that story, but that's, think of that as being behind 
being motivating this game. So there's gains from trade, what Adam Smith calls gains from exchange. Here it's gains from having, a, for one, cementing a relationship with two, and, and in a sense, and they can do that simply by passing play. And the players know the rules, all these rules in advance. Yeah, yeah. They know that one moves first and can either play right or down, and if, then two can play right or down. And, and right is 15.25, down is 0.40. So under Max U analysis, one should never pass to two because if he doesn't pass, he or she gets $10. And if he does pass, you can expect to get nothing. Right. Well. What happened? We were shocked. Half the ones moved down. Half of them. And of the twos, three quarters of them chose the 1525. And only one quarter, the wow. 040. And we found that pretty absolutely amazing. And this is, as you say, anonymized. So we're not talking about, you know, the identities and the stories and the, 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 the have an empathetic yes. uh, history to each person you're saying in strictly anonymous circumstances yes. in which it's a game. Yes. These were the outcomes. And, and we were even, there were even those who kind of criticized us for the, the rules here were, were just, uh, were just basically inviting others to take all the money. Well, that's true. But, 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 but they were defying those instructions. Here we were creating a world where, oh, it's okay to take all the money. The experimenters set this up, it's okay, no, no problem there, and they were defying that, see. So that got our attention. And moreover, we could replicate, other people, we did more of these experiments and they all had this. Now the, the payoffs mattered, you see. Uh, but the general features of this game, a remarkable tendency for people to pass to the twos and for the twos to predominantly cooperate, that is to choose the, the, the shared outcome over, this, over the self-interested outcome. And so, listen, we didn't have any way of explaining this. Economists didn't have any way of explaining this in a good way at all. And uh, we first explained it in a way that I later realized, after I read Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, after I read that, I realized we didn't have a good explanation. We were arguing, well, there's reciprocity here. You see, in a way, this is kind of like a trade, an exchange in a market, and people are seeing that that way. But why in that circumstance are people seeing it that way? Why shouldn't two just take all the money? You see, it didn't, it didn't uh, uh, also, <clears throat> they're doing it because uh, uh, cooperation is best for them. You see, uh, in a way, what does it mean to reciprocate a good action by an, uh, the other person? It means to choose play right rather than down. Uh, so that the, the, the explanation is, is contained in what people do. There's not 
see, there's no kind of independent. There's, it's a circular sort of argument, you see. And, and, and I, I really, once I understood what uh, Adam Smith was saying in the theory of moral sentiments, I realized that that was really not a satisfactory approach. In other words, if, if we assume a strict self-interest, self-interest strictly understood, yeah. we cannot explain these results. Can't explain, no. And so what does, and you're saying that, that in the time in which you were making these experiments in the 20th century, economics did not have explanations. It was absolutely ill-equipped to analyze exactly. this data and to exactly. give an explanation because it was so captive to a Maxu analysis. Right. Now, so, so, in, so you're saying you went back 250 years to Adam Smith, Theory of Moral Sentiments, and you found an answer that was yes. and able we didn't, to, to explain this. Exactly. We didn't go back there for that purpose. You happened to, okay. We, uh, Bart and I realized in reading the Theory of Moral Sentiments and for that, by the way, I'm great, very grateful to the Liberty Fund. Liberty Fund seminars introduced me to the theory of moral sentiments hmm. uh, at some point. And, and, so, and also to Bart uh, Wilson. We started to use it in class. And we used it with students where we were also... Have, having them participate in these experiments like the trust game because we realized that what Adam Smith is talking about really we should be able to, to relate it, you see. But, <clears throat> but it was only after we, we started to... We, we were thoroughly enough familiar with the theory of moral sentiments that we could begin to think the way Adam Smith did Tell us, tell us. And that's that not means. easy for an economist. <laughs> okay. Now, now, why is it not easy for an economist? In the theory of moral sentiments, everyone is strictly self-interested, just as in the wealth of nations. But being self-interested, in Adam Smith's view, does not prevent them from being other-regarding toward others. And the link here, the key here, is to realize that you can be self-interested, but as Adam Smith says, you can't look your neighbor in the face and avow that all your decisions are based upon the self-interest. In other words, all can be self-interested, but, but our decisions may take into account maybe other regarding concerning others, especially in our intimate groupings. So, you see, the thing is, we, it's very hard to get along with your neighbors if every act is strictly self-interested and a selfish act toward him. And, you, and, we have, and we're, here we are trying to live, you see. So that the way Adam Smith puts it is that we are motivated to go along with... with uh, the experiences we have with our neighbors. And that starts, Adam Smith says, that and we, we start to become rule followers. And, those, and those, uh, the rules we follow depend on our being self-interested, but they also require us to take actions, you see, that reflect the hurts and benefits 
that others feel in response to our action. And Smith says, when we first have playfellows, we find that they are not as tolerant as our parents. And, and, and they're not as, as indulgent as the way he put it. They're not as indulgent as our parents in uh, uh, tolerating our anger and, and some of our, our explosions. So we begin, we, we, we start to realize that we have to modify our actions in order to get along with our playfellows. And Smith calls that, at that point, we enter the great school of self-command. Mm. I love that term, self-command. Not self-control, self-command, you're in charge of yourself. Mm. And so it's interesting, his whole notion is that, that these values come in at the bottom of society, at the very beginning. And, and in effect, those define property rights. Because, uh, uh, let me give you, and, and in Smith, uh, there's two pillars of society, beneficence and justice, okay? And let me give you the first proposition on beneficence that explains the trust game. <laughs> hmm. uh, Smith says that actions of a beneficent tendency that are properly motivated, meaning you intended it. I, I do good for you and I intended to do good for you. That wasn't an accident. Given those conditions, he says, require reward because of the gratitude that, that others feel for those actions. That's the proposition. Okay, take the trust game. I passed to you. I didn't have to pass to you. I, uh, why don't why don't I just take the move right? I didn't have to do that. So I, if I do it, it must be because I intended to. So now, what are you going to do? Take all the money? Smith says, No. You feel required to reward that out of your gratitude. That's the proposition. And wow, that see, this that, is just. I think this is amazing learning because. <laughs> You know, what, what one often hears about Adam Smith is that this is this very uh, uh, atomistic, totally solipsistic uh, self-interest that doesn't give a damn about anyone else. And what this, what your experiment's showing, what you're saying Smith can explain, is that we're actually more fundamentally, uh, Smith understood that we're more fundamentally, we're intrinsically connected with each other. Yes. And so so let's talk about that movement that you describe in the book and just now between, you know, being with your, your parents when you're young and they have perhaps, uh, they prefer you and they may indulge you because they they, they want the best for you, but but that, that can lead to being, to being sort of, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, spoiled uh, or indulged in ways that are not going to serve you well in the world. So then you make the transition from the people who love you and care for you in, in normal circumstances, your parents, out into the world, into the sandbox, the world of play or school yes, yes. Or, or the school of life, so to speak. And there you find people who do not have any natural uh, 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 preference to indulge you. And so let's talk about what happens there because I take it what happens is that if, I don't know, I don't share the toys in the sandbox, 
people aren't going to want to play with me. That's right. Or if I lie to them and they can't count on my word, they're not going to want right. to, to, to talk with yes, me. Yes, find, they find ways to punish you. Okay, and, if nothing okay. else, they ostracize you, you see. And, and you now, and, you, and, and, and you're miserable. <laughs> okay, you're miserable. You don't like that. And so you find ways to, to, to get along with these playfellows. And to, and to do that, you, you have to take actions that benefit them, you see. And, and also gently remind people if they do something hurtful, do something to them that, that is, is hurtful back. So we learn to, you see, re reciprocate the hurts as well as the benefits. And that doesn't and, mean that doesn't mean to actually uh, it meant to act to actively hurt someone so much as to communicate communicate to them well the loss in your on, on hurt you give you give them less than they would yes. have gotten. You don't have to actually get yes, in course, the blows. You see, but although clearly that happens often. <laughs> But, but you see, that's the idea. So, and, and also, Smith recognizes that that process of rule following and learning better and better to get along with our neighbors uh, through our choices, he says that's a long, lifelong enterprise. Mm -hmm. He says one can scarce live long enough not to still being find better ways. <laughs> It's incredible. That's a beautiful sentiment. Oh, it it's is. A, it's a beautiful. It's, it's, and moreover, there's experiments that were not motivated by that, but people were curious. How about young pe people in the trust game when they're eight, 12, uh, 16, uh, 28, 40? There are trust games done with people of differing ages. And is clear it so up that into the they 60s. get. They get. They, they start out, and at the at the low end is when you get the least amount of cooperation, really? and then more and more. So, so what you're saying? So, so the, wow. So, Adam Smith is dead on, but he makes that when he he basically is giving us a prediction. You see, of those experiments. What that means is that the realization of our own individual subjectivity throughout time is accomplished by becoming more and more profoundly attuned to the needs. Yes. Of others, yes. This is a mind-blowing idea because it's so counter to what you know popularly people think Adam Smith is about. So what I would what I take this to, to mean is that is that if people think that you know, there's all these sort of you know, critiques of the, the the solipsistic subjectivity of modernity and it's it's purely instrumental and self-interested, and what I what I take it to mean even in Smith's story of the baker is that is that you could say that in some sense the baker is attending to his own interest, but he's only able to do that by understanding you know, what, what kind of bread you like, when you like it, how you like it, at what yes, time you right, like right. it, how much of it you want. And so yes. he, can only, he can only attend to his interest insofar he's already internalized yes. your interest as other than his, that he's exactly. a step into your mind. And so it seems to me there's at work here a profound uh, reciprocity of our, uh, yes. of our subjectivity. Yes, and of course, out of that beneficence proposition, Smith derives reciprocity. He doesn't start out and assume it. He gets it from this more fundamental thing. Yes. And actually, I see it as underlying trade. You, you, yes. you, you said it very well with the, the, the uh, you see, the butcher and the baker. Uh, they, want, they want to benefit their customer because they can get a better price the more they benefit, you'll see. So, uh, and the, the price is the reward, 
you see that uh, the buyer is willing to give to the seller for that benefit. In fact, mutually, simultaneously, they are uh, benefiting and rewarding each other. Yes. So you have... <clears throat> so, so your work has radically reevaluated the idea that markets are based fundamentally, exclusively in self-interest, strictly understood. Right. But notice that that proposition is recognizing that when you get more, I mean, the person one is, take the trust game and applying that principle there. Person one implicitly is assuming that person two is better off if person two gets more. Okay? So, in fact, you can't analyze that game unless you assume that. Why do we say that if two moves down, that's terrible? He takes all the money and one is made worse off. Why do we say that? Why because we assume people are self-interested. <laughs> we can't make, you see, we can't even make that judgment and, and, and interpret that game unless we assume that. But... What this proposition says, it tells you something about the sympathies, the mutual, uh, the fellow feeling you see between people that allows, you see, gratitude, permits this gratitude to be felt and, and the urge and, 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 and the feeling that that has to be, be uh, compensated. So, see, imagine that... Uh, <clears throat> Imagine that I put out my, it's, it's time for garbage pickup on my street, so I put my barrel out. Okay. Uh, I come home that evening and I forget to bring it in. Well, if I leave it out there, I'm going to get a ticket because the street sweeper comes by and you're expected. My neighbor brings it in for me. So... When I go over to thank my neighbor for that, I take some avocados picked off my tree. Now, there's a nice example, you see, of Proposition 1. It applies not only the trust gave here, it applies the sort of thing that people see every, every day. Proposition 1 is? The, the Beneficence Proposition 1, that if I do, deliberately do something good for you, you feel gratitude and feel required you feel the urge you to to to, comp to to reward that. I want to reward that action. You see, this is very interesting because um, you also. I was reading in your in your book. You quote. Uh, it's actually not a quote, uh, but you you refer to Smith saying that beneficence constitutes the virtues we celebrate and and applaud: courtesy, kindness, thoughtfulness, compassion, mm -hmm. honor, and integrity. These features of good conduct cannot be extorted, coerced, or legislated. Right. So my question is, you and Wilson are, are saying here, is that as fundamental as beneficence is, it cannot be forced. It has right. to be free. Why is that? It, well, because lots of people who think, it, well, of course it, you can. You, you raise uh, the level of mandatory, uh, I don't know, taxes or it, it, it have enforced morality. Well, Smith is Smith simply... It doesn't work. See, Why is it? See, that's his, we call that his beneficence proposition too. 
where he's just emphasizing the importance of that really being a freely uh, chosen action on the part of the first uh, person. If there's any element of coercion, his second proposition says that that calculus of benefit and gratitude no longer applies. Well, uh, that motivated us to, well, from, from one thing, we, we, we uh, noticed that when we introduced, uh, let me give you an example of a variation we do on, the, on, the, uh, on that trust game where one can come back, if, if, if two defects moves down, one can come back and punish two for that action at a cost to himself. Now, the, you need to modify the payoff so it, it doesn't take all the money, so that there is a... <laughs> we do a modific modification where if two moves down, I think one gets uh, $6 and two gets 48. The, the payoffs are larger in this case from the very beginning. In fact, the right move, they each get $12 rather than 10, okay. So now we're down and, well, so a defection means, on the offer to cooperate, means that two plays down, one gets $6 less than his original 12, and two gets 42, most of it. Okay, take this variation. Suppose two moves down, but play passes back to one. One now chooses between six, 42, or at a cost to himself, can punish that. He gives up, he gets $4 rather than six, but two only gets $4. So he can punish that. Well, uh, this is exactly an, an example of a Smith's justice proposition. See, see the, the, the counterpart of beneficence uh, to Smith is justice. And, and, and justice to Smith is concerned with eliminating or controlling unjust actions. So he predicts, you see, that uh, in, the, in his Justice Proposition 1, if one takes an action that's hurtful toward two, two will be motivated to, to punish that because of the resentment he feels. So resentment is the negative factor to gratitude that, that generates and, and justifies in the person uh, punishment of two. And see, he gets property rights out of that. That's exactly, see, murder, theft, robbery, violation of contract, these are all hurtful actions and they're punishable. And we have, in society, we have laws against that. He, and, and Smith, and you read Smith, where do those come from? They come from these the way people treat each other in the small groups long before there's a government. <laughs> yeah, so there, there, I understand that there, are disincent there, that there must be disincentives to uh, that kind of, uh, to be the behavior that, 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 that punishes others. Okay. 
what is that, how does that relate then to... Let me come back now to Beneficence yes. Proposition 2, because yes. I needed to introduce okay. this other. Okay. Now, it's interesting, because if you compare the outcomes of the punishment game, you see, with the, uh, with the, the, the pure uh, uh, cooperation game, it turns out that if I pass to you and you know that I can come back and punish that, you are less cooperative. So in really? other words, yes. Really? In, in other words, already within that game, you get some, some, Gosh, uh, you get some information on Proposition 2 because now you see, you see it's not pure trust. How, it's not pure trust. You are... You can come back and punish me. So there's an element of people see an element of coercion in that. Yes, and so now you have instead of one third down and two thirds right, you now have uh, I've forgotten the figures, but maybe forty percent down. You get a larger proportion playing down, and the best explanation of that is that. If you reserve the right to come back and do this to me, is that a signal of trust? Well, it may be a, some signal of trust, but not as strong as in that first game, where now I'm totally vulnerable, you see. If I pass to you, uh, there's nothing I can do if you defect on it. You, people in your position, are now more cooperative. And in other words, that 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 gratitude is really uh, sort of compromised by the fact you see that that you can come back and 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 punish me so I thought that that's this is amazing very, so what you're saying is 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 is, is that the uh, the non zero-sum reciprocity uh, is uh, the non zero-sum reciprocity is greater the purer the trust is yes. the purer the, the, the purer the voluntary quality of it yeah, is. Yes. So that so that the, 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 the greater the greater degree the, the greater the presence of coercion and therefore correspondingly the less free the action, the the yeah. the worse the outcome. And of course, people are very mistrustful, mistrustful of asymmetric power. They don't like it. <laughs> And that's in in a way you see kind of what's happening here that that power to come back, and, and in this simple game already is kind of changing the way that see the pay, the way people read moves here is is such that they now read those moves differently. That, by the way, is not plainly uh, anticipated in Smith. That is. Uh, at least, if it is, uh, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not sure where. I, I I wouldn't rule it out because he's 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 got such a high batting average. <laughs> so this isn't simply that. So I'm just trying to get my head around this because this is such a powerful point. Uh, it's it's that if someone perceives that their own freedom, their own freedom with respect to that beneficence yes. is being undermined, yes. then, the, uh, then, the, then the outcomes become uh, negative. Yes. Gosh, this is amazing. So I want to tease out a few thoughts here, and I, I know we, 
We don't have all day here, but I want to ask a few more questions if you don't mind. If you don't mind. No, no. Um, Go ahead. We, you can always cut this if it's too long. No, no I, but, I, but let's I, let it I, run. I, I, let's let it. Let's, let's let yeah, it. Yeah, let it run. Let it run. <laughs> um, so, um, what we're sa- you're saying then is that a non-zero sum, other regarding reciprocity, is inherent to markets and in fact explains their success in a way that MaxU does not. Uh, well, uh, let me... Or is that going too far? Let me qualify that. Okay. No. I, I think... Here's... I think early on, people, no doubt, study... Or, I mean, experienced economic exchange in their own close-knit groups. And those economic exchanges were a natural extent, extent of... Extension of this social exchange, but that moved to strangers, and I think what was important as it moved to strangers was that there's some form, some way of enforcing property rights. You see that that some means of that that becomes, and in in fact, and in fact, economic exchange is enforced by a property rights system by third party system, party, uh, third-party uh, property rights in, in, in enforcement that punishes these actions that are, that are hurtful and lets the gains, the positive gains, ride without mm. interference, you yes. see. And, and I think that's, imp- that, that's, an important, that's an important part. You see, if, if there's third-party enforcement, then the, it depends less upon trust, internal trust. You see, I, I can, I'm, I don't know you. I'm not sure whether I can trust you or not, you see. But uh, we're in an environment where there's third parties that can, can, uh, and can intervene and make sure that I'm made whole if you cheat on me. You see, I think that becomes important so that these gains in that arise in our social and personal experiences with each other get extended, you see, more broadly and start to encompass mm. strangers. Mm. But it is important that you, you see that all of a sudden you don't have theft coming in and, and, not, and non-payment of bills and this sort of thing. You have to have it without that. And so that, that is important. In an economic exchange, you have something that I value more than you do. Mm. And I have something that you value more than I do. So we can both gain from the trade, from the exchange, you see. And so you have, you know, these, there are these spectacular examples where with early American Indian tribes, would give stuff very valuable to the to the whites for something that was just cheap trinkets. But for them, the point is, subjective, they valued those so-called cheap trinkets far more than the whites they were trading with. So there was really a gain there, a, a true gain. And, and so that's where economic exchange begins. It begins with each side having something that the other side, it may not be an object, it may be a service. You see, it can be a good, it can be an item, or it can be something that uh, I repair your bicycle <laughs> for you. 
and I can repair your bicycle very easily, and that's easy for me, and you value it very highly, and it's cost me very little, so there's a gain there from that exchange. So all, that's the foundation of the economic exchange. And there is some subjective improvement of welfare with pure exchange. But more importantly, <laughs> we have now prices. There's, price, uh, uh, there, there's prices for corn and hogs out there now that people are trading corn and trading hogs. And you start to calculate and you think, you know, it's better for me to grow corn, more corn, and get my hogs by trade than growing it myself. And, and you, at the margin, you, you start to realize that, so you grow, you move toward more. And since you can always easily get either product through trade, you go to the corner and you decide to entirely specialize in corn. Somebody else entirely specializes in hogs. And they do this over time and maybe imperceptibly, and now you see the corn growers are the people who are best able to grow corn. The hog growers are best able to specialize in hogs, and now the whole system has, has created wealth, you see, out of that specialization that didn't exist before the, that specialization occurred. So it begins with trade, where each side benefits, and then and then, at the, and then on the basis of the stability, always being able to trade, yes. I start to change my change how I organize my life. You start to change how you organize your life because you find yourself better and better. Pretty soon, everybody's better off, and that's the secret of wealth creation. You see, and Adam Smith, great genius. This was actually known before Adam Smith, but his genius was to put together that, that, put all that together in a system, you see, that was uh, convincing to uh, statesmen, and not only, not just, uh, it, it, it may have still been missed by a lot of citizens, but statesmen began to realize, you see, and, it, and then that ended up changing the world. And in one of the interviews you gave some time ago, you at one point said, you know, 20th century economics, it was the thinking that was wrong. The mathematics was fine. It yeah, wasn't that yeah. people didn't have the, the, the mathematical tools to analyze these experiments. Yeah. What was wrong with the thinking? What were the well, assumptions? Th what was wrong with the, the thinking was that people couldn't imagine that anyone can find a better state in that market unless they had complete information. In other words, I had to know your value, and you had to know my value. Now you see we have complete information on that exchange. You see, that was the thinking where, where the thinking was completely wrong. You see, that information can be private to you and private to me, but we do find a price where we're each made better off, and that can happen, and I never know your true value. You never know my true value. That was the error in the thinking. You see, the mathematics expressed the gain if we trade, you see. But the idea that we would have to have that, that's the thing that was completely faulty. And the first experiment showed that. Here, here, here are people that walk in off the street for the first 
class in, in, in a, that I was teaching in economics at Purdue, I mean off the campus, they're coming, they don't know any economics. They haven't read anything yet. They know nothing about it. And I put them in this simple experiment, and my gosh, it blew my mind, you see. They found the equilibrium. How can that be? They, know not, they don't even know economics. <laughs> and, 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 and what is the answer to that question? How is it? Well, the, uh, the thing is, they, for one thing, they, they immediately find, individuals pairwise find that they can gain. And, and they negotiate a price between them. Others see that. This is the, now a price. Other people can now, the, uh, the sellers can compare their costs with that, the buyers their values, and the people, buyers with higher values, are going to say, oh, that's a good, I'm going to try to do that trade too. And a seller, you see, can see that, that he benefits from that, his cost is lower, so they enter into those trades. Now, they, the, the first trades may be not near the equilibrium, you see, but over time, people are learning. You see, that's, that's tending to converge. And then if you repeat, so there's day one of trading. And, and, and suppose most of the, of the contracts are below the equilibrium. Okay, the second uh, period, there are sellers, you see, that got left out that are going to try to, to uh, and buyers, I'm sorry, that are left out that are going to bid higher, be prepared to to, you see, uh, pay more because not all, there weren't enough sellers to satisfy all the buyers who wanted to buy, you see, if those prices are too low. So the prices, the second period, start to rise, they, and, within, and they get there very quickly. And, and, and they kind of don't know what they're doing in the sense they don't have complete information. They don't know anything about supply and demand. The point is they don't need to. They need to know when they're, when they're doing better and when they're doing worse and then correct their errors, you see. And, and try to, and each person is trying to improve, so. Because I think one of the very, one of the, one of the questions, of course, Smith calls this the, the invisible hand. And, and I think one of the, the things, if one takes a step back from that and say, well, what the heck is going on there? I can only conclude that there is a, there is a non-zero sum character inherent to reality itself, which emerges out of the spontaneous ordering of these particular pieces. Yes. You know, we have a conceptual framework that is far more robust than, say, I don't know, various forms of postmodernity or Marxism or reductivist materialism to account for many other Let's say non-material reality, non-material and zero, non-zero sum realities, from knowledge to science to love, forgiveness, justice. You might say the whole realm of human experience that literature and philosophy and theology, history and politics is about mm -hmm. opens up to you from the standpoint of what I take you to be illustrating in economic exchange. So, in one interview you gave with Victor Clark. You say that religion, like science, is all about in, invisible realities. And theology and religion is the analog of theory and physics. Yes, yes. So, you know, one of the things that we're... You see the thing, uh, uh, the thing that's visible to the traders in a market 
is that I gain, I'm better off doing this, and you're better, and, and, and you have the same perception. Uh, the thing that's not part of our intention is, is that this leads to specialization and wealth creation, and that's far beyond, you see, what the individual can see from this perspective. This is something that, that's what, that's what the invisible hand is about, you see. Yes. They're guided by an invisible hand to achieve outcomes that are no part of their intention. <laughs> it's, yes. it's the unintended good things, you see, that come out of that, that is involved in uh, wealth creation. That's the nature and origin of the wealth of nations. The, the nature and origin is right there. <laughs> it's in his title. The unintended outcomes. The unintended outcomes outcomes that that are generated out of that and that involves the corn the people discovering it's better to specialize in, in corn and others in yes. hogs and 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 so each going and doing that which is best fitted turns out to i mean wealth is coming out of the woodwork i mean it's just it's just there it is you see, and no one, see, see, you can't manage that because how do you know in what sense are you better at one thing and the other person? They have to, that has to come out of their experience. Yeah. That they may deliberately, Smith uses the example of the philosopher and street porter that are playfellows. But as they grow up, they're, they're exposed to all kinds of different influences and, and forces through markets and everything, and they end up being very, very different people. And, and yet Smith, see, Smith sees us really as, as all created equal. There's no doubt in your mind if you read very much of Adam Smith. He sees people as essentially uh, the so-called savages in North America. We were like that at an early stage. You see, he saw uh, they're kind of a natural progression from antiquity down to where, where they were in 18th century Scotland. And you look out and you see not everybody is in that same state. Well, you know, they'll get there. I mean, he, it, it, it was a very optimistic view, you see, uh, of the world. And, and of course, limited data to, to observe then, but he saw the principles, you see, that actually predicted and forecast the kind of wealth that ended up being, being created. In this interview with Victor Clark, you talk about these invisible realities and you suggest that science itself deals in invisible realities. Yes. And of course, this is very, uh, this is in a certain sense, very unpopular view because science is captive, much science is captive to, mm -hmm. a, to a certain sense of, of uh, it's, uh, an absolute commitment to a kind of materialism, as if nothing immaterial could ever be real, quite apart from the fact that you can't account for rationality by that standard. I know that you're a religious man, you've written about your Christianity. The things that we've been talking about in terms of reciprocity, do you see those as analogous to, or even expressions of, either the commandments of Christ to love your neighbor, to be other regarding, or even early theologians understand the, the Trinity as an other moving dynamism. The Father, 
totally self-othering to the Son, the Son returning to the Father, and you have this non-zero sum mm-hmm. expression of the most of the most profound reality itself. Do you see any relation between these things and your religious faith? Yes, and I think uh, to me it's an invisible reality that Jesus was particularly uh, and brilliantly recognized and was able to express it in parables that were just uh, are astonishing. The wisdom, you see, you see that's and 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 other peoples and never exposed to Christianity, nevertheless, through other leaders, often had similar kinds of discoveries uh, uh, being made. And, and it's not that different than science because, you know, one of my, uh, one of the professors at Caltech when, when I was an undergraduate there was Carl Anderson who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the positron. He did no such thing. He didn't discover the positron. He studied particles, showers of particles in a cloud chamber and was able to isolate one that curved in a different direction than an electron and therefore and had a, it seemed to have a similar mass, so it must, it must be the positron because of the way it was curving. Well, now you can't get more into, talk about an invisible reality. <laughs> you see, here you are interpreting some deep theory and mathematics in terms of this effect on the, the trace of charged particles in a cloud chamber. You see, all of science is like that. You see, it's based. It's based. It's based. We don't. Scientists don't directly observe any of the materials as part of their part of the the, of the theory and the way they make all the quantum mechanics is 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 just a mathematical stretch of the imagination. Why do we believe it? Because it makes predictions. We see effects from it. If it's true you would see these effects. If it's not true, you wouldn't see those effects. You'd see something else. So, so you see, we have these indirect measurements. And people have these, this intuition, this sense, and, and that there are, there's intelligence in the universe that's beyond our comprehension, that we were created in the image of that intelligence, so that in the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word was God, and God was the Word. You, that you get in, in, in John, you see that's a powerful statement about, about, uh, about reason, about intelligence, it, it's about information, about meaning, you see. That it hard for, it's very hard, I think, for anyone to read that without having, feeling this sense of, of the truth that, that's being captured there. And, and the, the, of course, the early followers of Christ, of Christ uh, uh, were, were really tremendously inspired 
of course, by him, and in particular by the experience after his death of, of the resurrection, you see. And all of that, there were witnesses, you see. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know what? Christ existed and he was everything he said he was, or he was just a, a, a raving maniac. Yes. <laughs> Stark raving maniac. Yeah. And, and, and no one can make that statement. You see, he says, but that's, I, I love C.S. Lewis in terms of just brutally, brutally confronting you here with, what, what you, how are you going to dismiss this? Yes, well, I, well that's, 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 I, that's a wonderful phrase of Lewis's. What I've, <laughs> what I've been thinking as I've been reading your work is that just as we, uh, we do not know we do not know how the actions we undertake in freely undertake in the marketplace will create wealth for others exactly. and beyond. That reminds me, and so that seems to me to point oh, to... Oh, I think it is. Yes, that points to, and uh, let's call it a, a, a non-zero-sum nature to the real itself that, we, that, that is present in our actions but also transcends our actions. So mm -hmm. it happens whether we believe in it or not. That, that it is pointing to, let's call it a... Uh, an inner reciprocity to reality, and you know another way that I would that I would get at this is, um, you know, I think about you know when I went to Middlebury College to learn German, uh, the summer of two thousand six. What was within my will was I needed to learn German to get through my PhD. I had to take an exam, and I thought that's what was going on in that action. It was just that was just that mm -hmm. transaction of my learning German. But in fact, I met my wife when I went there. And I had no idea, that, of course, that well, I didn't yeah. know even her existence even before I went. But it turns out, looking back, mm -hmm. that was, you know, and I think so very often in life, when you look at what you consciously chose, you look at the greatest things in your life, and you realize that their origin was present in things you chose, but beyond your consciousness of your choosing of things. Of yes, those things. yes, yes. And that seems to me to point to a... Uh, a very profound reality that cannot be accounted for from within um, a strictly uh, reductivist materialist standpoint. I agree, I agree. Uh, that, but it, it, it demands see, there's a... There's sources of inspiration, you see, in the actions we take that are subsidiary or, or external to it, that, but, but we're there and we recognize them when we see them. You see, somehow we're able to Yes, to and so the that, whole question so. of why the market works, why when... Why, why it actually comes about that markets produce wealth and maximize benefit, that the very fact that that works points towards realities that are, uh, that, that is one manifestation of a reality that we may know also in science, in religion, in love, forgiveness, and so on and so forth. Finally, though, I just want to ask you a quick question about education. Um, you know, from the student loan crisis to bloated bureaucracy, to political indoctrination, the problems and critiques of higher education are both widespread and profound. I've often noticed a contradiction, though, speaking about marketplaces. Many critics of higher education are knowledgeable about markets and the power of competition, and yet they virtually never propose reforming higher education through competition. And so the status quo remains unchallenged. Do you think competition through new institutions could be part of the answer? Yes. 
important that there be islands of spectacular uh, success, yeah. as yeah. well as ones that yeah. that are that are are doing poorly in order to people to see where they want to go. Well, Vernon, I, we are we are so very grateful to have you as a visitor of Ralston College as we embark on this educational venture. And I want to thank you very much for this uh, long interview that you've given me today uh, that I know will be greatly appreciated by our viewers and listeners. Thank you. It's very, my very pleasure, much. Stephen, and thank you for setting it up. Well, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Ralston College Podcast. My guest today is the Nobel Laureate in Economic Sciences and Professor at Chapman University, Dr. Vernon Smith. Dr. Smith has authored more than 350 books and articles, but two are especially relevant to today's discussion. First, Papers in Experimental Economics, published in 1991 by Cambridge University Press, And that's the place to turn if you'd like to learn more about his groundbreaking experiments discussed in today's podcast that led to his Nobel Prize. The second is the work I had in my hands during our discussion, co-authored with Bart J. Wilson, Humanomics, also published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Finally, I'm very pleased to announce that Ralston College's first online course is now available. It's a six-week course with the great cultural critic Theodore Dalrymple, also known as Dr. Anthony Daniels, on a towering figure of English literature, Samuel Johnson. The course explores Johnson's humane realism through a deep dive into his only novel, Rasselas, or in its full title, The History of Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia. In Rasselas, you'll discover deep thought through great art. In Dalrymple, you'll find a wise and helpful guide. And in all of our courses, you'll be encouraged to ask fundamental questions, because there's never been a better, more necessary time to ask them than now. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.